0: As Kev and and Kel mentioned, we are at week number four of a seven-week series, Disciples Who Make New Disciples Who Make New Disciples. And so this series is all about getting right to the very core of the Christian life, discipleship, the life of being apprenticed to Jesus. Now, three weeks ago, Kev spoke using the the analogy of a tree. He spoke about the trunk, the trunk of the tree as these discipleship environments. And this is the core activity of the gathered church, gathering together to empower and to equip and to encourage one another in the formation of Christ within us. And we partner together with Jesus and Jesus in the building up of his church this is the trunk these discipleship environments they they're in our sunday gatherings they're in our homes and in our home groups and also on spiritual retreats and one to one discipleship and each of these shared environments they involve the coming together of individuals each of us on our own discipleship journey each of us navigating our own apprenticeship And this apprenticeship is pretty much out of sight. It's an internal process. And this internal space below the surface, this is where we've spent the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, Andrew spoke about this idea of core beliefs, Uh, not just those things that we mentally agree with, but those deep convictions of the heart that we might not even be conscious of and our core beliefs they're, they're effectively our taproot this is the deepest part of us it's our heart the wellspring of life and then last week Kev spoke to us about truth and he reminded us that truth is a person it is the person of Jesus who is the truth he is our ultimate reality he is our ultimate source And he reminded us that the Bible doesn't save us, that Jesus does, and that all of scripture points to him. And today we're taking our final look below the surface in the soil, and we are exploring the topic of practice. And what we're going to quickly find is that right thinking on its own is not sufficient to reshape our hearts. That truth that resides only in the mind, while that's mandatory, it's insufficient to conform us into the likeness of Christ. Truth and practice must combine to transform our deepest beliefs, to reshape our malformed hearts. And then this deep work of renewal within us, then it overflows quite Naturally, in our words and our choices and in our actions and in our character, it bears fruit. So truth and practice, both required to shape and to renew us in our depths. And so we'll see what Jesus himself says. And we pick this up in Matthew chapter 7, uh, starting from verse 24. Now, this, this comes right at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it was here that Jesus lays out his alternative vision for life and conduct and commerce and community. And Jesus himself says that it's not enough to simply hear or to even agree with what he says or with what scripture says about him. There must be action. There must be an embodied response. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Information on its own does not deliver a firm foundation. Action is required. And then the account in Luke says the same thing. So picking up uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus speaking, and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on, on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. You see, there is something about practice that establishes our foundation below the surface. Our action in response to truth is like digging down deep and laying a foundation on rock. We can hear the truth, we can even agree with it, but unless we also train our bodies in accordance with that truth, our foundations will be weak and the reality that we construct will be washed away. And this is not just about obedience. This is about everything that we do with our bodies and the way our actions, the way our habits and the way our practices shape us more deeply than we might imagine. It takes truth and practice to reshape our core belief. Because here's the problem. Human beings are not primarily thinking things. In the deepest sense, we are desiring things. We're creatures of passion and of drive more than we are creatures of rationality. Now, I'm going to get a little bit philosophical here. Uh, Augustine, Aristotle, uh, Aquinas, perhaps all philosophers starting with the letter A, they all understood that we are teleological creatures. Teleological means that we live toward what we want. We orient, we point ourselves towards a goal, towards a telos. We point our lives toward a picture of what is ultimate and our actions and our choices, they emerge somewhat automatically in the direction of that vision. And it's not just a philosophical idea, it's a biological one. And neuroscience is continually attesting to this. It is our desires that take hold of our hearts and they commandeer our core beliefs and shape our action in the world. James K.A. Smith, uh, he's an author and a contemporary Christian philosopher, says, uh, and I'm going to refer a lot to to Jamie Smith this morning because he, he writes a lot about this idea, he says that primarily we are lovers. He says that to be human is to love. And I don't know about you, but I really like that. A couple of years ago, I probably would have squirmed about it, but I like this idea that to be human is to love because I think it makes perfect sense. Because after all, we are made in the image of love. We are made in the image and likeness of God who is love. And so love must therefore be an irreducible part of what it means to be human saint augustine described us humans as as a bundle or as a quiver of loves and these loves are like arrows and they're either correctly pointed outward outward toward others and outward toward god or they're disoriented and they're curved inward on ourselves and this is the essence of sin we are a bundle of loves we are desiring things And then 1,200 years later, it was Rene Descartes right at the dawn of the Enlightenment who famously said, I think, therefore, I am. And then that conclusion massively influenced Western thought. It still influences us today, but it sent us on this modernist goose chase, believing that we are primarily rational thinking things, like brains on a stick, some say and the truth is like it or not we we are embodied creatures with limbs and organs and senses and instincts and desires and emotions and we do wildly irrational things we are passionate and we are sensual more than we are logical we are lovers and so discipleship is not only it's not even mainly about disseminating information or even about correct thinking. Discipleship is about reorienting our loves. It's about recalibrating the direction of our hearts. And that simply takes practice. And all this recalibration, this is hard work, and it's hard because we're also creatures of habit. Our bodies seek efficiency, and so we're constantly automating ourselves. Our bodies learn to do things by rote so that we can layer more and more complex things. This is how I can drive a manual right while eating a cheeseburger at the same time, which is awesome. But there are problems. Our habits... Those behaviours which have become automated, they are not value neutral. They are pointed in a particular direction, making us particular kinds of people. They lock us into a trajectory and sometimes we don't even know what that trajectory is. 400 BC, the Taoist philosopher Lao Tzu said, watch your actions, they become your habits. What's your habits? They become your character. And what's your character? For it becomes your destiny. The more habituated we become, the more automated we become, the more we are locked into a rut, locked into a pattern of this world. You see, we don't think our way into patterns of individualism. We don't think our way into patterns of materialism. We don't think our way into addiction. We emote and we behave our way there. And eventually we become this fusion of our habits of our sleeping habits and eating habits and purchasing, drinking and work habits, our browsing habits, our viewing habits, our driving habits, our nervous and reading and study, and our hygiene habits, all operating on autopilot and all making us into a particular kind of person and all pointing us towards some end. And so Paul says, He's saying in light of everything that God has done and has promised in light of his boundless mercy, which has been the subject of the previous 11 chapters, Andrew reminded us of two weeks ago. In light of all this information about the truth, who is Christ? Offer your bodies. Resist the patterns of this world, patterns of idolatry, essentially, and instead discipline your bodies to live, to act, to choose, to speak in the direction of your destiny. And living this way, it isn't easy. In fact, it's self-sacrificial. But as we, in light of truth, we offer our bodies to God, we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, how is that? It sounds like a disconnect. What does offering our bodies in this way have to do with the renewing of our minds? Well, it's interesting because the word that's translated here as mind is the Greek word nous or it's where we get nous and it's all of the faculties of perceiving and understanding those of feeling and judging and determining it is the place of deep knowing it's the place of will it's the place of desire our eastern orthodox brothers and sisters say that the nous is the mind of the heart And so mind here is not synonymous with just intellectual knowledge or rational thought in a way that's disconnected from our emotions and our desires. You see, Paul did not suffer from this disintegrated view of humanness that the Greeks did and we still seem to suffer from now. Like many ancients, like many non-Westerners, Jews did not have this compartmentalised view of what it means to be human. They understood that we are holistic beings, heart, mind, soul and strength. And so Paul is saying that, that this whole of life transformation, it requires renewal in this place of deepest knowing and because we are not disintegrated beings, we are not brains on sticks this naturally includes and it requires the intentional use of our bodies in response to God's mercy. And then get this, Paul says that this is true and proper worship. Picking up on the same idea, Dallas Willard Uh, In the book, The Great Omission, which is actually a book about discipleship, he writes that character is formed through action and it is transformed through action. He says that transformation, in addition to constant faith and hope in Jesus, is purposeful, strategic use of our bodies in ways that will retrain them replacing the motions of sin in our members, that's not you, that's our bodies, with the motions of Christ. So there's a bunch of words that I've been using here that probably would would benefit from a little bit of definition. So I hope this helps. So we've been talking about habit. A habit is a pattern of action that is acquired and it has become so automatic that it's difficult to break. It is a product of biological efficiency. A habit is a tendency to perform a certain action, behave in a certain way. But as we've said, here's the thing. A habit is not neutral. Every habit is aimed towards some goal. Habits aren't just something that we do. Habits do something to us. They aim us towards some goal, towards some end, whether we actively choose that goal or not. James K.A. Smith says that habits often both signal and shape our core beliefs or our most significant desires. So do you see that? Our habits shape our core values, our core beliefs, and, they signal, they reveal what our deep desires really are. And so, an inventory of our habits will tell us what we really believe, what we really value. And I think that's pretty confronting. And so, he says this The goal of discipleship then is to rehabituate us toward the kingdom. Let's talk about virtue and here's here's why virtue is important. At least in the way that it is understood in in classical moral philosophy, virtue is a habit. Virtue is a disposition, it is a tendency to consistently behave in a right manner. It is a trait that's morally good or, or noble. Aristotle said that it is by doing just acts, that the just man is produced, the temperate man by temperate acts. This is actually a pretty old photo of, uh, of Aristotle, I did find a newer one. Um, Aristotle observed that, that we learn moral virtue primarily through action, through habit, through practice rather than through reason or through instruction. And so can you see here where perhaps we have missed the mark with knowledge-focused discipleship, brain-on-stick discipleship. Virtue is a habit and the ultimate virtue of the Kingdom of God is love. The Catholic Church is really clear on this. Uh, they claim that there are three theological virtues: faith, hope, and love. And this is straight out of 1 Corinthians 13:13. 13, 13. These three things will last forever: faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So faith being grounded in the person of Jesus is a habit. Hope being oriented towards his promise of life together is a habit. And love that binds all of these together is a habit. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the ultimate reality is love. And we have been created to resemble love, to image, to represent, or to represent God. Jesus says, This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. They will know you are my disciples because you image me. When you love one another, you represent me. So in the same way that all of scripture points to Jesus, so should we. So let me say it this way. To be discipled toward the kingdom is to, is to habituate love so that we resemble the king. Great. How do we do that? Well, it's simple. Not easy, but it's simple. We practice. If you listened in last week, you'll remember that Kev spoke about uh, these radios that, that would drift off frequency. Uh, They would drift off their true source and then they would need to be retuned. They would need to be recalibrated. So these radios had a habit of drifting away from their true source and so a practice of recalibration was put in place. Practices are actions that form and calibrate habits. Habits are acquired and they're modified by practice. By repetition and see this is why we practice scales on piano, it's why we practice our takeoff in surfing, it's why we practice a golf swing, it's why we practice HSC exams or at least why we should be. We are desiring to calibrate or to form a habit in pursuit of some desired future, a telos. Christian practices are designed to form and to calibrate habits in the direction of the kingdom. So my good mate, Jamie says this, he says, this is great, habits are inscribed in our heart through bodily practices and rituals that train the heart as it were, to desire certain ends. Christian practices are by definition countercultural they're not conforming to the patterns of this world they are designed to counteract the formational gravity of the patterns of this world christian practices are acts of cultural resistance and so therefore we need to be wary of of practices and strategies that would render christians that would render the christian life indiscernible from the patterns of this world. When the church and the Christian life looks no different to the surrounding culture, we have habituated ourselves to the patterns of this world rather than to the patterns of the kingdom. And if that happens, no one will know that we are his disciples. Christian practices are meant to be weird They're meant to be radically weird, radically generous, radically inclusive, radically hopeful, radically selfless, radically communal, radically grounded. We are meant to be strange. We're meant to be distinctive. Brian Stone writes that the most evangelistic thing that the church can do today is to be the church. To be formed imaginatively by the Holy Spirit through core practices such as worship, forgiveness, hospitality and economic sharing into a distinctive people in the world, a new social option, the body of Christ. We practice our way to becoming a distinctive people so that we might offer the world an alternative society and surely that is what the world needs. And of course, to to practice life in this way, it takes sacrifice. It takes intentionality, which is why Christian practices are sometimes called disciplines, Christian disciplines or or spiritual disciplines. And a spiritual discipline is any practice that is attentive to and attended by the Holy Spirit that forms or reorients habits toward the kingdom of God toward God and his kingdom. Spiritual disciplines are intentional practices. They articulate a posture of of deliberate cooperation with the Holy Spirit so that we might recalibrate our loves, recalibrate the patterns, recalibrate to the patterns of the kingdom rather than the ones of this world. And this idea of spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices is not reserved for fanatical Christians or hyper-Christians. This is the normal Christian life. This is why we are called practising Christians. Craig Dijkstra, in Growing in the Life of Faith, he writes that the life of Christian faith is the practice of many practices like any apprenticeship the Christian life takes practice well like what what are these practices you guys ask great great questions what are these spiritual disciplines that that orient us that that point us towards God and his kingdom well of course there, there are many um, such as gathering which we would have a. Would have loved to have been doing today but hopefully you're meeting together in homes today but gathering together as the body of Christ is an act of cultural resistance overcoming the lines and the categories that that might otherwise separate us lines of uh, rich and poor and and slave and free Jew and Gentile Satan sinner we are one body the simple act of gathering is a Christian practice. It's a spiritual discipline, and the writer of Hebrews advised us never to give it up. Giving, tithing, generosity, these are direct rebuttals to our culture of self sufficiency, of, of independence, to this myth of being self made. We give because we participate in a different economy where we are not owners of our own kingdoms, but we are stewards in his. Singing, we use our bodies and our voices, if we're allowed to, to declare that we are not God. We sing songs of worship as an act of cultural resistance against idolatry, against self-worship, against autonomy, against hopelessness. And we say thank you with our whole body. We declare truth, we declare justice, we declare forgiveness, we declare reverence. And worship together in song is a profound message of recalibration to our own souls. Communion is perhaps the most profound and potent of Christian practices. It's one of the ones that, that Jesus instructed us to do. He said, Do this in remembrance. Of me, and then he constructed it around the dinner table so that we would do it over and over again. And in this practice of communion, we, we imagine forward to the wedding feast at, at the end of the age, but at the same time, like we, we anchor that that future in Jesus' sacrificial death. And then more than that, we then take that sacrifice into ourselves and become one in flesh and blood with the king of the universe himself and we do it in and we do it with a community of believers as one body. Talk about a weird act of cultural resistance. There's more. Confession and forgiveness, they go hand in hand. Forgive us as we have been forgiven. Confession is abnormally vulnerable it is incredibly courageous and it is desperately countercultural and forgiveness is perhaps the most faithful way of imaging Jesus demonstrating love not holding a grudge not seeking revenge not demanding compensation when we forgive wrongs done to us we are the ones who bear the cost the forgiver pays The price. And this was Jesus' radical example on the cross. And it's this practice that we want formed in us as well. And it's flipping hard. Baptism, symbolizing the death and resurrection uh, of of Jesus. And he told us to take up this practice with all new believers. And you might think, but baptism only happens once. How How can that practice become a habit? Well, it happens only once to you or to me, perhaps, but not for the body. And the fact that this this practice of baptism, symbolising dying to self, is something less than a habit, is probably a problem we need to address. Celebration, celebrating Christian weddings and funerals, are increasingly countercultural practices. Uh, Christmas, Easter, Advent, Lent with Christ at the center, gratitude, giving thanks, prayer, fasting, feasting, sabbath, silence, stillness, retreat, solitude, and notice that all that we're doing here is following Christ's example, his own practices. And think about this too, Jesus did not just fill the original 12 disciples' brains with information with theology. Jesus' ministry was not just a 3-year long seminary lecture. He put their bodies to work, their eating, drinking, sleeping, walking around bodies, practicing the ways, the patterns of the kingdom. Bible study, abstinence, moderation, hospitality, lighting candles, praying, using rosary beads, incense, icons, dance. Every single one is an intentional practice designed to habituate us toward the kingdom, to reorient our loves. And therefore, each bodily practice is an act of worship. And worship is God's way of habituating us towards himself and towards his kingdom, of reforming us in his image so that we look like love. And love takes practice, so disciples practice love. Let me be really clear here, though. We don't engage in spiritual practices to make God happy or to earn favour. Our practices and our disciplines do not cause God to be merciful. And in fact, he is pretty darn scathing. If we think we earn favour through our practices, through our religious rituals. So this week, keep an eye on the reading plan to see what God says about that. It is simply this. Our practices shape us towards particular ends. Our practices form and calibrate habits within us for good or for ill. And it's up to us, it's our responsibility whether we will be shaped by the patterns of Aaron Affair and Facebook and Terrigal Big and Netflix or the M1 or by something greater. Don't think for a second that the practices and the patterns of this world are value neutral. They co opt our desires and our bodies, and they point us in a direction of seductive disappointment. The patterns of this world disciple us. To their own empty ends and and information alone right thinking will not counteract that momentum we can't think our way into new habits doctrine and theology and teaching that reveals truth about christ about who he is and what he has done this is mandatory but to not put his word into practice is to build on shifting sand and so by the grace of god and through the power of his spirit we practice we calibrate to the true source and we do it over and over. And it is through repetition with our bodies that the countercultural patterns of the kingdom are stuffed into our hearts. That the good news is pressed into a place so deep that it is not just something we know, but it is Christ Himself formed within us. Truth and practice. Shape our core beliefs such that we are grounded in Jesus himself, transformed from the inside out by his spirit. And it is the evidence, it is the fruit of this transformation that we're going to turn to next week. But this week, this week, would you be a practicing Christian? here's three things that you can do. First, look at the practices of this world with new eyes. Just pay attention to the rhythms, the practices, the patterns of of your workplace, of the shops on your devices and recognise that they're not neutral. The second thing you can do, perhaps take an inventory of your own habits and consider what path they have you on. Where are your habits taking you? What deep desire or core value do they reveal? And here's the third thing you can do. Consider how you might intentionally engage in spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines in a new way this week. Recognise that by the power of the Holy Spirit that these practices are recalibrating our habits. They are rehabituating us toward God and toward his kingdom, reorienting our loves towards each other and towards him. And remember that love takes practice. Look at the patterns and the practices of the world with new eyes. Inventory your own habits. Press into your own practices in a new way as part of your whole body apprenticeship to Jesus. Let me pray. father god it is our desire that the truth of the fact that we are made in your image would be revealed in our lives would be revealed in our bodies our choices our actions our words our responses our behavior our desire is that our hearts would be pointed towards you towards you not curved in bent on ourselves. By your mercy, would you set our sights on your promise of our future. By your spirit, would you transform us from the inside out, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.